Welcome to the Frankly Speaking podcast, Friends of Europe's weekly broadcast on European and world affairs. In this episode, we're delving into a topic that affects us all, the State of the World Population Report by UNFPA, the United Nations Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency. The report is titled, Eight Billion Lives, Infinite Possibilities, The Case for Rights and Choices. This report calls for policymakers to prioritize women's rights and choices as we navigate rapidly changing global demographics. And this report could not have come at a more important time, which is why we at Friends of Europe were delighted to be able to hold an event in collaboration with UNFPA yesterday. At the event, we discussed the report's findings with Dr. Natalia Kanem, Executive Director of UNFPA, and Dabravka Suica, Vice President of the European Commission for Democracy and Demography, who pointed out how the European Commission addresses the demographic transition with targeted policies across the whole life cycle. I invite you now to listen in on our conversation, hosted by Darmendra Kanani, Chief Operating Officer at Friends of Europe, who moderated the conversation yesterday on the report's key takeaways and the urgent need for action in this critical area. Take a listen. Hello. My name is Domendra Kanani. I'm Chief Operating Officer and Chief Spokesperson for Friends of Europe and uh, very pleased to be your moderator for what is a um, extremely pivotal, important, strategic and significant report um, about us and our future. And it's important that we have this conversation because it's brilliant. I mean, you can see from um, all the kind of branding, this is a really significant step forward for humanity, some might say. It is, we are now 8 billion and, and counting. Um, and this is framed as a discussion about women and girls. Um, why? Because they, they hold up half the world and the earth, but also fundamentally significant to our shared future. We will be talking about all of that and more with our significant cast list of speakers. But I also want to say a word of thanks firstly to UNFPA. Um, there's a wonderful woman here and she's branded completely. Yeah. Please stand, my darling. Look at that. I mean, look, really? This is how you do it. She puts us all to shame. Uh, so, uh, Birgit, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm saying, you know, this is not to, I mean, let me be direct. She reached out to us and said, you know, we want to partner with you to launch this report. And we said, absolutely. What an opportunity and privilege. So I want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to work with UNFPA on, on the launch of this report. We've got, uh, as I said, the executive director of the agency, then we've got Commissioner Sucha also, and then we've got a panel uh, of uh, people from different uh, perspectives, uh, whether that's to do with, um, uh, you know, reproductive, reproductive health, what happens to Roma women, a perspective from Mexico, um, and a health perspective, etc., so, and a private sector perspective. So we're trying to give you, I suppose, a 360 re view of the issues, but more importantly, it's you. Thank you for turning up um, physically. We also have uh, over 100 or so of you online and welcome to all of you if you can see me and hear me. Thank you for joining us. I don't know where you'll be. You're probably in another part, any part of the world. Uh, so, you know, welcome to either morning, evening or day, you know, whatever afternoon uh, to this event. And we'll make sure that you're engaged also in the conversation. So my colleague will signal to me when you want to ask a question. So you are fully included, even though virtual. So to the report. 
Um, you'll get an opportunity to hear from the executive director in a moment as she presents the report. But just to say, you know, isn't it fascinating uh, that at this at this point in our century, where it's only been relatively recently, and I say that deliberately, that women have got the vote. It's just over 100 years ago. So let's not forget that. That suddenly, in this past 18 months, two years, three years, we have male politicians who are making the charge of weaponizing and um, yeah, I suppose deteriorating the rights women have had up to this point or have increased. But suddenly, the womb is political. It's politicized and your choice and your right of your own reproduction is being questioned. It's been made into a almost a, a religious fanaticism around it. And there's a kind of radicalization uh, around it. And I just, I just think, what are young women and yourselves, women in the audience, thinking about that in the sense that actually, goodness, are we really having this conversation now? Uh, that actually I'm being questioned about whether I had the right to choose and whether, you know, why is it my, my reproductive uh, right, uh, organs are suddenly become politicized, radicalized in a certain way. And in certain senses, the issues that are in this, in this report, there's a kind of weaponization of populations and, you know, the growth. And what's great about this, and we'll hear, and I'm gonna hand over to the executive director in a moment, is, what the study has done, I, I think, is really useful in that actually looking at populations across the world to get a sense of what people are thinking. And it's quite striking that many of you who rep are represented in this still believe that population growth is um, absolutely uncontrollable and it's going to bring the climate uh, you know, to, to our fr front door and all sorts of issues around gender and inequality are rife in people's perceptions. So without further ado, I want to invite Natalia to the podium. Thank you very much for being with us. Over to you to present the report. I'll just take my, my nonsense away. Thank you. Thank you so much for that really brilliant introduction. Your Excellency, Vice President Suiza, dear Dubravka, distinguished panel members, esteemed colleagues and friends, and a warm welcome to participants who are beaming in online. And really a special word of thanks to you, our hosts, uh, the Friends of Europe. I'm delighted to be here with you. World population is busy reordering itself. Last no November, the human family surpassed 8 billion people, the largest population ever. At the same time, the global average fertility now is the lowest in living memory. We're living in a period of extreme demographic diversity, two thirds of people living in a place with below replacement fertility. Others live in countries experiencing vigorous population growth, some countries have a median age around 50 and others around 15. The ranking of the world's most populous countries will change significantly over the next 25 years. And as we speak, many of you know, India's population is overtaking China's. Everyone wants to know what all of this means. And without a clear answer, there is a serious danger that human rights and in particular, women's reproductive rights are going to be undermined. That's already happening in some places with calls for limits to family size, bans on contraception in public hospitals, women being urged to step away from careers to become mothers. 
Yet women are also clapping back to insist that they're not merely baby factories. Today, the UNFPA, which is the United Nations Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency, launches our flagship State of World Population Report, and it's titled Eight Billion Lives, Infinite Possibilities. We make the case for rights and choices. And the report has two clear messages. First, that we need to shatter the myths about population. Many say that the world is overpopulated. They blame fertility rates for the climate crisis, for instance. And in a recent survey, we found that the most commonly held view is that the global population is too large, that fertility rates are too high. And according to that kind of logic, Global warming supposedly is driven by the proliferation of human beings on a planet of finite resources. Yet it's a fallacy. This fallacy holds the wrong people to account. It's just 10% of the world's population that's responsible for fully half of greenhouse gas emissions. The countries that have the highest fertility rates contribute least to global warming, and yet they suffer the most from the climate impact. A woman in the Sahel with uh, seven children, she likely has had no impact at all on climate change, but it is she and her community that are going to experience some of the fastest rising temperatures in the world. And when we focus only on fertility rates, it actually distracts us from real solutions, like reducing consumption in the wealthy countries. The climate crisis needs a climate solution, not a fertility so-called solution. And I would also like to shatter the myth that low birth weights, low birth rates are the culprit behind aging and related economic concerns. Blaming women for producing an insufficient supply of babies ignores a lot of much more viable solutions. And these solutions must be implemented while respecting human rights, while respecting women's rights. For example, aging low fertility countries of interest here in Europe could increase their productivity by achieving gender parity in the workplace, by expanding access to affordable childcare and looking to migration to fill labor shortages. So the population myths that I'm describing really distract us from a real and powerful story of human progress. Yes, populations are aging and we're all aging because people are living longer, healthier lives, which has gotta be a good thing. Since 1980, the average life expectancy has actually increased by about a decade. And the fertility rate varies, yes, because women are increasingly able to access reproductive health care. And then apart from shattering myths, the second uh, point that I'd like to make and that the report delves into, we have been asking the wrong questions. The question, is not whether the human population is too large or too small. The question is, can everyone exercise the freedom 
for their fundamental human right to choose the number and spacing of their children. And sadly, the answer to that is a resounding no. Our latest data show that 44%, almost half of women are not able to exercise their bodily autonomy. They're not able to make choices about contraception. They're not able to decide whether they will leave the house and go to the clinic today to seek healthcare. And they're not at liberty to decide whether and with whom they're going to have sex. Globally, nearly half of all pregnancies are unintended. So that tells you that people are not able to exercise their reproductive rights. Many women, in fact, would like to have more children and they're unable to do so. The report addresses infertility in its pages as an overlooked variable in terms of reproductive choice. And we also state that from our studies, the proportion of women who are actually able to meet their personal fertility aspirations, more children or fewer children, is as low as one quarter in many of the low and middle income countries. And why is this? So we at UNFPA see the reasons every single day in our work around the world in the 130 countries where we serve. UNFPA sees how young people still need very basic information about the facts of life, their bodies and their rights. And this is very contested in terms of human sexuality education. We have to ask why, that's an appropriate question. When we see how men and women struggle with limited contraceptive choice or they can't access contraception at all. UNFPA knows from our work with survivors of sexual violence that the most violent expressions of gender inequality remain ubiquitous. Experience and research show us how structural conditions like sexism in the workforce and at home contribute to high levels of involuntary childlessness. And then there remain enormous gaps in the prevention and treatment of infertility. History does warn of the dangers of treating women's reproductive capacities as a tool in the hands of those in power, from the horrors of fertility targets to eugenics, to laws currently on the books in some countries today that allow a husband to rape his wife. Over and over, we've seen how power over women's bodies seized by patriarchal structures, whether that's son, father, in-law, or the state, abrogates women's ability to exercise their choice. And the global community must say no to such practices. And history sadly also shows us how fear can be weaponized. Fears about overpopulation, about underpopulation have long been used and continue to be used to exclude and to harm people who may look different or live differently. So to close, the world is not going to solve its greatest challenges by treating the fertility rate as the problem. Inequality is the problem. So let us look at the root cause and inequality is who we count and whether or not we think they count. Our report newly shows that half a million births every year are taking place among girls 
as young as 10 to 14 years of age. Girls labeled innocent and denied the facts that I referred to before. Girls so young that they definitely may not realize that they can even get pregnant. They're certainly too young to consent to sex and they can sometimes be legally married off at that age and coerced and abused. Until very recently, the world did not even measure the uh, number of pregnancies among girls this young. Again, we have to ask the right questions. For far too long, we've only interrogated the numbers, but we haven't asked what women want. And I think we have to finally start asking questions of the data, of the population data and policymakers like uh, our Vice President Dubravka have taken note. The question is about inequality. It's about rights and choices. Who has them and who doesn't? In the end, population is not about numbers, it's about people. Evidence abundantly shows that when people are availed of opportunities, when they can be healthy and educated and able to exercise their rights, that's when individuals and societies flourish. When the rights and dignity and equal value of all people are truly respected and upheld, then we unlock a future of infinite possibilities. Thank you very much, Natalia. Um, thank you for delivering such a powerful, powerful set of messages so delightfully uh, and charmingly. And no one in this room could be, you know, thought, thinking otherwise that actually we really need to think differently about this conversation. And as we can, we say this should be a um, um, eight billion stories of hope, opportunity and social progress rather than people looking at it the other way around. So thank you very much for that. Now I'm going to turn our attention to the commission, a policymaker, a significant policymaker. We have vice president nonetheless in our audience. So Dubravka, thank you very much for joining us. Please um, over to here to get to the podium. And really for, for you, uh, we'd like to hear from you about what are the implications of this for your portfolio? Uniquely, you introduced this portfolio, we'll hear about that, but it'd be good to understand how this factors and features into your policy agenda into the short, but also the long term. Over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning to everybody. Dear Natalia, dear ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues, uh, I'm delighted to be invited here to this event this morning to share uh, some ideas with you and to share what European Commission is doing on demography. First of all, let me tell you that this is first ever portfolio on demography and democracy, which, is, which was assigned to me by my president Ursula von der Leyen. The reason for this is because we realized that uh, demography becomes very important, uh, although uh, I have to admit that demography itself, in the very sense of the word demography, counting birth rates, counting mortality rates is member states competence. It's not European competence, but what we are doing, we are creating environment for people. You are right, Natalia, when you said it's not about numbers, it's about people, for people, for families to thrive, be it young or old. Uh, at the beginning of my mandate, we started uh, with first ever demographic report. What now we, uh, after Brexit, after COVID, after COVID, in the middle of COVID, uh, in the middle of this uh, Ukrainian uh, war, uh, uh, we uh, did our second updated uh, report. What we learned from it? 
First, we learned that Europeans live 10 years more on average in last 50 years, which is huge, huge uh, achievement, but at the same time, huge challenge for member states, for their healthcare systems, for their long-term care systems, for, uh, for uh, pension systems, as all of us know what's going on here in France. So uh, then we realized that one third of European households are single households, be it young people or older people. This is also something which should be taken into account when talking about loneliness, about different uh, phenomena uh, which are uh, now uh, at stake. So for us, demography transcends borders. Demography transcends European Union borders. This is the reason why I'm here and I'm trying to share uh, this 8 billion figure which we marked last year on the 15th of November. And I really want to thank Natalia for her uh, excellent work and for helping us uh, and sharing uh, your thoughts and your ideas. So uh, what we did what we are, you, are, you presented me as a policymaker. What we did uh, after this demography report first, uh, we had uh, our European Green Paper on Aging. Aging is big phenomenon. It's not about birth rates here. It's about, about living longer lives. It's about uh, development of medicine. It's about uh, our big achievements in medicine. It's about uh, eating habits. It's about uh, living habits. So when we say age, uh, that means we start aging from the day we are born. It's not aging doesn't mean that you are old. <laughs> so getting older means being in the end old, but aging starts from the day you are born. And this is how we have to adapt our living habits, our uh, uh, habits. And I think this is uh, eating habits and other, it is very important that this is the reason plus development of medicine that we have, that we live longer lives. So aging is phenomenon in Europe. And we deal also with uh, uh, both aging and depopulation. When I say depopulation, it means that there are, there is big conflict between rural and urban here in Europe. Having in mind that 80% of European territory geographically is covered by rural areas. And in this eight, and at this 80% of the territory, there is only one third of European uh, population, which means 130 million people after Brits, the Brits left. So uh, this is huge potential. We have huge potential there, what we are doing. We adopted long-term vision for rural areas because we think that we have to invest heavily in rural areas, invest in uh, first broadband and 5G, because that nowadays you can't imagine life without uh, broadband. You can create new jobs, but you, can, you have to be covered with broadband. Then in different services. At the same time, you know that we are now in the mid of the European year of skills. Which, was, which is followed by European Year of Youth. So we think that skills are very important and that we have to upskill and reskill uh, our people, our citizens, be it young or old, especially we are promoting lifelong learning. Then what we did, we adopted care package, care strategy, which is very important because at the moment there are more care receivers than caregivers. When you look at our picture in Europe, 90% of, now I'm coming to gender dimension. When you look at Europe, 90% of caregivers are women, which means 17 
million women work in care sector versus 10 percent 450,000 men so which is total in which is inequality <laughs> and we are trying to change this of course this profession is not respected not paid well undervaluated so we have to promote this professional caregiver uh, our education system should be changed and so on and so on but again education is member states competence so what we can do from european level we, we can give recommendations and this is what we are doing uh, when we talk about uh, care, uh, it's also about Barcelona targets. Uh, you know that there are different schools of thought whether kids should be enrolled in kindergarten from the from crash here, from the first days or later on. What we did, uh, we changed Barcelona targets uh, that children from zero to three, 50% of children should be enrolled in kindergartens. And from three plus 96% of children should be enrolled in kindergarten because we saw that it's uh, better for their development, for their psychology, for, for different reasons. So, but at the same time, we need infrastructure, buildings, kindergartens. At the same time, we need people who will uh, be in labor market. We have shortage in European labor market of 8 million women. Why? These women have their CVs, they have their careers, but they can't afford kindergarten or nursery home for their parents, either for kids or they have to take care about their parents or about their kids. So it's not affordable to them. So how can we, this is very important to say here because we Europeans allow 8 million women not to be in labor market because of this. So we have to invest heavily and we have to use our cohesion policy in the best possible way. One fact more, which says that in 2070, we will be only 4% Europeans. We will be only 4% of world population. Fine. At the same time, we want to be leaders in different sectors. So how can we achieve this? First, with the best possible use of our cohesion policy, which is at disposal, different funding, regional funding, different funds. So politicians at local, regional, and national level should use these funds in the best possible way. Second, we have to use artificial intelligence and robotics. This is some, I, I, I'm not saying that this will replace humans, but it can replace in, uh, in, in different uh, uh, different sectors. And the third one, which might be sensitive is in only few member states, it's managing legal migrations. Without managing legal migrations, we wouldn't be uh, able to, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to be competitive in the world market. And we have to deal with this. And this is something which is not only my personal opinion, but our commission's position, just to let you know what we are doing in this. We also uh, uh, adopted a few months ago a communication on harnessing talent to European regions, because we see that many European regions are lacking talent, not because and some of them are lacking talent because they lack tertiary education, and some of them because of moving from one member state to member state to another, or moving from rural to uh, urban area. This is, for example, in Spain, Portugal, in Finland. You see people moving from villages to uh, urban areas, and at the same time, you see Eastern European countries, people from Bulgaria, Croatia, Romania, moving to Ireland, uh, Germany, Belgium, Belgium. There are two perspectives within the Europe itself. So you were talking about uh, birth rates and it's not about numbers. We can accommodate all of us on this planet. 
but there are two perspectives. Somewhere you have high birth rates, somewhere you have low birth rates. Within Europe itself, the other day, I had a meeting with the Dutch minister in charge of housing. He told me oh, I'm in charge of demography. I, saw, I told him, how are you in charge of demography? He said, you know what? In a few years, Netherlands will be 18 million people. We will have 2 million people more on, on the same surface as Estonia. Estonia has, at this moment, Estonia has 1.5 million. So Netherlands, 18 million, Estonia, 1.5 million. We won't be able to afford housing to these people. And I have to deal, to do something with this. So there is imbalance, there are imbalances within Europe itself, let alone <laughs> in, the, in the world. So this is big, big issue. And I'm trying, in fact, sorry for being so long, but I'm trying to reply to the question why Europe and European Commission decided to inaugurate new portfolio on demography, because we saw that we are not the island, we are not an island in the world. So we, this is the reason why I said that demography transcends borders. And this is the reason why we are dealing with this. We also adopted youth action plan in external action. For us, of course, youngsters are very important, but we are talking about intergenerational solidarity. It's we are focused on young people, but at the same time, we have to uh, teach them how to be engaged, how to be empowered. But at the same time, we have to take care about uh, older people because they are not burdened to our society. They are experts, they are knowledgeable, they have wisdom, and they can help uh, youngsters. So we are talking about intergenerational fairness. And this is something which von der Leyen president wanted to, uh, imp uh, she wanted to insert intergenerational fairness into your treaty of the European Union. So, but it's not easy to change the treaty at the moment, but this is something which we have to take into account. And when we talk, uh, think about um, recovery and resilience plan, which we adopted after COVID, uh, the biggest ever funding, we call it popular in next generation EU, but it's not called, by coincidentally next generation EU, because we are preparing with this money, this Europe for next generation for youngsters together with them. And this money, which we are borrowing at the moment at the capital market will be given back by 2059. So who is going to give this money back? Youngsters. So this is the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain what is the best ever example of of uh, intergenerational solidarity. Sorry for being so long. Uh, sure. I have a lot I'm more. I'm only edging towards you because I know you're going soon and I want them to have an opportunity to engage with you. Sorry, That's sorry. all. Yeah, but yeah. Thank you. No, thank you. 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 That's great. We'll leave it there for today. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to the Frankly Speaking podcast newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or a rating, as it truly helps us reach more curious minds like yours. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week.